Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him. The sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield. So he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are in APY. APY can change at any time. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Ezra Klein Show. I'm excited this week to have Ariana Huffington on the show. Ariana Huffington obviously is the founder and namesake of the Huffington Post, which is, if you don't read it, um, although you probably do, just a, a monolithic, has just become a, a new media juggernaut, was really important in defining the first wave of search-driven traffic in new media, and then it's become really, really powerful in the second wave of social-driven traffic. So we talk a lot about the building of the Huffington Post, how it works, how their global expansion has gone, how they rebuilt themselves from, from search to social. Ariana is, is very interesting and thoughtful and forthcoming on that. It is, particularly for me, who's interested in these things, a really great conversation. We also talk about her fascinating background in politics. Ariana Huffington was a, a conservative when she first came on the political scene. She was good friends with Newt Gingrich. Her first website was resignation.com, which was trying to elicit Bill Clinton's resignation during the Monica Lewinsky scandal. We talk a bit about her new book, which is about sleep and why you should be getting more of it. She has in recent years really been trying to push against what she sees as the American culture of overwork and undersleep and poor work-life balance. I am probably part of that culture, so I ask her a, a lot of questions about that. And, and frankly, I found her answers give me a lot to think about in the time after we conducted the interview. We also, of course, talk about her favorite books. One thing we talk about, which I was not expecting, is why she does not believe in death as a concept. Yes, death, the extinction of, of human life. So that is is interesting and, and worth paying some attention to in there. This is a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. I'm appreciative to her for having spent so much time with us here, and I hope you enjoy it too. Before we get to that, though, I have my normal couple of requests for you. One is to share this podcast, put it on Facebook, put it on Twitter, uh, send it to your friends, tell your mother. This is how we grow, and I am really grateful for when you take a moment, if you're enjoying it, to do so. The second is to make sure to listen to my other podcast, The Weeds, where I talk policy every week with my colleagues, Matthew Iglesias and Sarah Cliff. They are super smart. That podcast is a lot of fun to do. And if you like this one, I'm, I'm pretty, pretty sure you'll like that one. And the final thing is to email me at EzraKleinShow.com 
at Vox.com. Again, Ezra Klein Show at Vox.com. Tell me which guests you would like to see on the show. Give me feedback on this show. And something else I'd love to hear from you is I am trying to create a, a template of four or five pretty standard questions I ask at the end. I always ask, as you, as you know, if you've been listening, for three book recommendations. I mean, I typically ask for a belief the guest holds that other people don't feel is true. But I'd love to hear what are some regular questions you would love to hear me asking of a wide range of guests. On, on every podcast. I'd like to make that a little more standard so I could tell guests to prepare for it. But first, I need to come up with some good ideas, and you guys probably have better ideas than I do. With all that said, here's Ariana Huffington. Hope you enjoy. You have multiple cell phones oh, yes. out in front of you. Doesn't that I'm take away the benefits of sleep? No. I feel like that... The only thing that matters is turning them off and out of your room while you're asleep. Where do you keep them? Ideally, either in the bathroom or at the other end. Outside of the room, that's all that matters. And is there an iPad or a computer near your bed? No. All, all screens are absolutely deposed so out of he, the bedroom. Here's my question about that, because I have wanted to do that, but have not been able to make the jump. I read on Kindle. Right. And when I'm going to sleep, I don't want to have the light on, and I don't want the light on waking up my wife. But books have this total absence of luminescence to them. So I find that, that, that you need a screen. And on the other well, hand, I've now read enough research to feel continually guilty. And it's another one of those things where you're sitting there in a loop saying, well, I need to read to go to sleep. But if I read, I'm never going to get to sleep. I just love the tactile feeling of real books when I'm going to sleep. And also, in terms of your lovely wife, you can either have one of those little lights that right. are directed, I mean, at your book, and she can't see it. It's just like they get on plane. Sometimes oh, they have them. Real books, I, I can't. You can't. No, I. The I, moment has passed for no, you. No, <laughs> I'm like that. I'm I'm like the character in who is it who wrote Super Sad True Love Story? Oh yeah, remember who is the book it? I'm talking about? Yes, yes. The, the Russian writer mm -hmm. who thinks books smell bad and get all over your hands. That's how you feel. Yeah, now. It, it basically is. I I'm I'm such a huge fan of the fact that on the Kindle you can highlight and those highlights get stored and then sent to. If but you, here's the, the thing. How would I remember? I have a I have a feeling that you are reading for work, which is a problem. Am I reading for work? You're highlighting and you want them stored and maybe you want somebody to put them together or you put them together for work. I love when I, just before I go to sleep, to read things that have nothing to do with politics, media, or work kind of narrowly defined. In the end, you know, of course, we process everything and turn it into work in somewhere or another. But if I read Jane Austen at night, I don't right. feel that I'm exactly reading for work. Of course, I may get a great idea from reading Jane Austen, but it's a little more tangential. I'm going to make a, a public confession here. I've not <laughs> confessed this in public. You've never the, read Jane Austen? No, I've read Jane Austen. She's fantastic. <laughs> um, the main kind of reading I do at night, which is why I keep an iPad next to my bed, is that I read Marvel comics on Marvel Unlimited. Oh, I love because that. Because too much of, as you say, a lot of the reading I do in actual books, is it'll fire up things I think about for work. Yes. But I find that just going through back issues of X-Force will put me to sleep. Now, it does create a real sort of glow. And the reason I have to use an iPad, there's no doubt that paper comics are better than, than digital ones. But 
you can get this program where you can buy for whatever 70 bucks. And they're not a sponsor of this program, but they should be because I would happily recommend this product. <laughs> Unlimited access to Marvel back issues. And I find that is a great before but you can't But uh, you can't read them on your Kindle? I uh, know because it, it just, it's a, it would need a lot of color. Um, so in the normal Kindle, you couldn't do it. I don't know. They might have a Kindle Fire app. I'm not looking yeah, for that. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure they'll get one for just for you, Ezra. Oh, well, there you go. <laughs> so I want to go into the book, but I actually want to go before it, if we could. So having read this book and, and Thrive, the one before it, it, it feels to me that this particular turn in your career has had a lot to do with the stresses and what you learn managing, starting and managing the Huffington Post. So you're, you're identifying? I am, I am, I am not saying that yet. <laughs> but, but yes, there's, there are things in it that I definitely recognize. But I actually wanted to use that as a way to go a little bit into the beginning of your time in media. Because when I was researching for this interview, I found that the first website you created was resignation.com. Yes. During Bill Clinton's impeachment. Mm -hmm. And this is a part of your history I didn't know. So I'd love for you to Talk a little bit about what that was and what you learned from, from your first online media venture. So what happened is that during this whole Monica Lewinsky debacle that sort of consumed our lives, I felt that the best thing for the country would be for Bill Clinton to resign. And looking throughout history, you know, resignation has been an incredibly noble act for many people, both here and across the Atlantic. And obviously, I didn't think he should be impeached. But I also felt that the country, at a time when there were huge problems we were facing, especially, ironically, in terms of what was happening to the middle class, and we're still living with some of the consequences, despite the fact that we think of the Clinton years as great years of prosperity, there were a lot of problems with the growing inequalities and the seeds that were planted and continue to be watered mm -hmm. to get us to where we are now. So I felt that this would be a great act of nobility. Nobody would have forced him to do it, but he would do it for the sake of the country. And so I, I thought that the only way to maybe make that happen is to create a groundswell of support for this idea. So I launched resignation.com. I brought together resignation letters throughout history to show again what an important in instrument it has been throughout history. And as you probably know, Bill Clinton did not resign. Wait. So <laughs> but are you sure? Wait, who are some of the great resigners? Well, you know, in um, the night before the sort of major Watergate kind of revelations, we had resignations when information started coming out. Mm -hmm. And afterwards, in the UK, we had multiple people resigning who didn't agree with policy. I have to go back and refresh my memory. We have to go back to the archives and find resignation.com. But it was pretty impressive when I was um, pulling all these names out. And what did that first experience teach you? What was the reception of it? And, and how did it have distribution? How did anybody know to go to resignation.com? Because this is a much earlier moment on the internet. Yes. Well, what was so interesting is that it was a different time where you could still create a destination site 
which you can't really do anymore. You know, now most, Except for the Huffington Post. Well, the Vox, Huffington Post kind of remains a destination site, although less and less so. And Vox, I don't know what your numbers are, but I'm sure most of your traffic still comes from social, right? Search and social, yeah. Search and social. So I think when, when resignation.com emerged, it was still possible to drive traffic to it directly, simply by people linking to it, by getting the word out. I was writing op-eds in the LA Times, another publication at the time, so I wrote about it. I did some TV about it. It was much easier to drive people to mm-hmm. a destination. And you could get a great URL like resignation.com. Yes, which I'm sure you couldn't <laughs> get anymore. You can't get anything nowadays. <laughs> okay, so resignation.com is alive for how long? Just the, the duration of that fight? Yes. It's interesting. On the first episode of this podcast, I talked with Rachel Maddow, and I asked her to say something that she believed that most people didn't. And she said that she thought Clinton should have resigned over Lewinsky. And I feel like I know increasingly a number of of liberals who, when they look back at that period, and obviously, I don't think you were liberal then, but in real time for you, that look back on that and are, are sort of shocked by what was ultimately permitted there. Well, what basically consumed us and, and, and what became part of the conversation, and my daughters were young at the time, and they were literally writing pieces for themselves about oral sex. <laughs> and Every parent's dream. And, you know, and like uh, sex in the White House. And it became this kind of conversation that distracted us. For a very long time. And for me, the whole argument of resignation.com was not a moral argument. It was really an argument of there's only so much attention that the nation has. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and where is this attention going? And if it's going for months and months into debating whether Clinton should be impeached or not, uh, it's not good for the country. So you have resignation.com, and then between that and the Huffington Post is Ariana Online. Yes. What was Ariana Online? So Ariana Online was really a place where we could have conversations around the columns I was writing. So um, I kept writing two columns a week, and, and basically I invited my readers to discuss them, to... In a way, we would now call it blog about the column. So I saw my column as a conversation starter. And I invited others to comment or write lengthier pieces, etc. So that was Ariana Online. And could anybody contribute? Or yes, it was anybody. invite only? No, anybody. anybody. Okay. Mm-hmm. And was that part of what led to Huffington Post? Yes. Well, what happened is that... Ariana Online made me fall in love with blogging because you're too young to remember. But at the time, blogging, probably am, yeah. <laughs> blogging was totally dismissed. As done, what year was this? Uh, well, the Huffington Post was born in 2005. So that was all in the early 2000s. I, I, I remember blogging being dismissed. I had a blog in 2003. And it was Dismissed or were you like and immediately Blogging, accepted? It, it sounded like something that grew on your foot. I mean, <laughs> it was such a gross word. Oh, yeah, even. it was and a gross... And at that time, the way people said it. Right? Yeah, blog, exactly. It immediately kind of... Stress on the O. <laughs> blog, which it immediately implied that you really could not get a job. Yeah. That you are basically freeloading off your parents in their basement, kind of... Uh, writing stuff down that nobody was going to read. Right. And in fact... Which is true for me. (laughs) It was only the beginning of your illustrious (laughs) career. And then, of course, establishment journalists like Bill Keller were so dismissive. I mean, there was 
the statement after statement just making fun of bloggers. And so my goal was to elevate blogging. And I thought the way to elevate blogging is to get great people who could have written for the New York Times choose to blog. So I literally sent emails and letters, even letters, out to everybody I knew inviting them to blog uh, on the Huffington Post. And um, I said, you can uh, say anything you want on anything you care about. If you wake up in the morning with an idea, it's going to be much easier for you than having to deal with New York Times editors and the whole back and forth process. So that was one part of the Huffington Post. The other two parts were wanting to build a, a journalistic enterprise, We started with five people, and it grew to 850 now. And the third part was aggregation. So from the beginning, we were these three pillars. And and when you decided to start that, I know it started uh, with a couple of other initial partners, Ken Lair, John Apretti is now the founder of BuzzFeed, was an early employee or possibly Yes, he was our first CTO. And what did you think didn't exist? What was the whole? I I thought the whole was having... an important conversation happening online, a conversation which would bring together both people who already had a voice and a a platform and people who didn't and kind of democratize the process, but not a free-for-all. So Huffington Post from the beginning, you had to be invited to blog or Mm -hmm. you had to submit and be approved. And comments were from the beginning pre-moderated. So I wanted to make sure that we avoided the worst aspects of the Internet, you know, the trolls. I felt actually very personally responsible for everybody I invited. I felt like they were coming into my home and they were writing for me for free. And my responsibility was to provide a civic environment. So if Steve Martin wrote, which he did the first week, and somebody decided to trash his movies and him and and, in troll-like fashion, that that comment would not appear. Let me ask about, there are a bunch of parts of this I'm actually super curious about in the, the beginning of Huffington Post, but but one is the ability to get people early on, like Steve Martin, Ari Emanuel, I remember reading John Cusack on there. You were able to pull together a pretty tremendous network of people who were not only knew you, but were willing to take a leap of faith on you, to write something on the internet, to do it for free. I'm really curious, as somebody who is deeply socially inept and awkward... That's totally untrue. No, it is deeply true. Um, How did you... How did you get to know Steve Martin, for instance, right? You're not a comedian. You're not an actor in Hollywood. How did that relationship begin? And then how does it become something that can become part of your blog? I think these were all people whom I, I knew, different degrees of friendship, like Ari Emanuel was a close friend, and my agent, Laurie and Larry David, were close friends and my first investors in the Huffington Post. Steve Martin, I had met through them at different dinners. We had connected. It was also asking people to write about things they cared about. I remember when I asked Mike Nichols to write about leadership because I heard him say something on Charlie Rose. And so I kind of ask him to write about a specific aspect of what he had discussed. And we made it very easy. Remember, the the, the important thing about all these people is that they were very busy. (laughs) And yet they want to be part of the conversation. So 
one of the services I offered was that they could call in and dictate their blog, especially in L.A. That was important because well, people, people drive everywhere. Right. And uh, Larry Dave never sent anything. He would call from the set and dictate a blog because he had read something that upset him and he wanted to vent. Oh, that's amazing. And so he would dictate it and then... We would send it back to him to approve it and make any edits, and then we would post it. I remember the morning that Ari Emanuel called me from the golf course on a Sunday morning to dictate a blog, and I just took dictation. <laughs> That's what we did in those days. Send it back to him, and um, it was up also immediately. That's the other thing that they loved, the kind of instant gratification mm-hmm. that, again, you wouldn't get with the New York Times. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. Support for the gray area comes from Burrow. Getting the right furniture for your place can be really annoying. At this point in my life, I've probably gone through maybe three sets of outdoor deck furniture, and it's a pain in the ass for a different reason every single time. It doesn't look like it did in the pictures, the assembly isn't what they said it was, or it's just not as advertised for whatever reason. Thankfully, Burrow is the furniture company that wants to make it all a little easier. Last year, Burrow introduced their outdoor line, and this spring they're adding to it with their Dunes line, offering new seating, dining, and lounger options designed for luxury, comfort, and durability. Burrow furniture is easy to put together and take apart, so you can move or store it as needed. And it ships straight to your door for free. Gray Area listeners can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com slash box. That's burrow, B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash box for 15% off. Borough.com slash box. So I'm going to ask you now a, a series of extremely dumb questions about how to act in public with other people. Because I, I, something that when I've spoken to people and, and was preparing for this interview, people said about you is that you are just a tremendously socially graceful human being. And that one of the things that has been important for Huffington Post is just the number of people you can involve in it. So I'm uh, I'm going to ask you like a series of odd questions. When you walk into a party where you don't know anybody, what do you do? Because what I do is get terrified and leave. Well, first of all, I think you're not being truthful about yourself because you and I were at a dinner, I remember, and together at Yellowstone. 
And you were unbelievably charming with everybody, including me. We had a lovely conversation, but I, I, I saw that you, that was happening all around you. So I think you have not updated your view of yourself. No, I had my wife there. I had a, I had a good social <laughs> platform. But, but leaving me out of it, I actually am very curious about this because I have always found just sort of walking and meeting people I don't have previous context for to be just in that unstructured way, a very socially intimidating situation. So what is your second question? It's like, hey, Yellowstone is beautiful. Then what? Well, first of all, I feel that there is something that each person has to say that would be interesting, even if it's not going to be somebody I want to turn into a lifelong friend. If it's a conversation over a drink at a cocktail party or sitting next to someone at a dinner, there is no question that you can't get something interesting out of everyone, provided you are interested in them talking to you. I mean, I'm less interested in me talking to them. So I just really want to ask them questions depending on who they are and what I think interests them. Like, give me an example, because you'll just sort of go to someone and you will ask questions about things that are outside the immediate context. Yes, and it may not be the first question, mm -hmm. then it may be the second question. But the, the important thing for me is we always know if the other person genuinely wants to hear something from us or whether they're looking over our shoulder to see if there's somebody more interesting who's just walked into the room. And I think that's the key. If somebody feels, hey, this person wants to talk to me and uh, I have something to say, then you're off to the races. And, and how do you go off to the races? So, okay, so first question is, hey, Yellowstone, it's beautiful. Are you having a good time? Like we were at this dinner, it was very nice. And then what? Well, it could be, is this your first time? Or is this your wife? Have you brought your children? Because remember, we're all invited to bring our children. And it becomes, they say something which leads to the next thing. So you do not do the thing. I've, I've met people before, and I've sort of always admired this, who will walk up to you and say, what's the best idea you've heard lately? Or just something totally strange, but that accesses a different conversational mm -hmm. space. That is not, that's not your approach. No. If I know I'm going to meet somebody, I love reading about them. Like I knew I was going to see you today and I loved, I love researching. Yes. Ariana brought in a, a dossier <laughs> a on me and, and showed me a post I wrote on sleep a long time ago. That in I'd 2007. Totally yes. I'm worried absolutely my, my views perfect. have changed. Well, if they have changed, they should go back to your 2007 <laughs> views because they're very accurate. But I love that. And the reason I do that is because it's like a shortcut. Mm -hmm. Then I know what Ezra is interested in now, or I know what this person that I'm going to be meeting with is interested. And I always feel when I'm being interviewed, I feel almost like because I'm primarily a journalist, I feel that it's a good thing to do to also know about them, mm -hmm. to know what interests them. And it makes a conversation richer. And so when you begin the Huffington Post and you go to these people, something you said I thought was interesting that you went to them and you gave them immediacy you gave them an ease of access that other people couldn't, right? I don't think you can call it. I could be wrong, but I, don't, I do not believe you can call the New York Times op-ed page on a Saturday and dictate an op-ed for the next no, day. No, or in fact, you know, you send something in, they edit it, they tell you you have to cut 50 words. Right. <laughs> you know, they change your open, and that's part of their editing process. And a lot of people say, oh, my God, who cares? You know, I don't really, my job is to make a movie or to write a script. You know, I, I'm, I don't really want to argue with that. The, the best kind of example 
that I think kind of put us on the map was Nora Ephron. The day we found out who Deep Throat was. Mm -hmm. And she was married to Carl Bernstein. And she was immediately invited on every show to write in the New York Times, the Washington Post, everywhere. They wanted to hear her side of the story. And she was a friend. She calls me up. She says, you know what? I don't want to put makeup on and go into CNN. I don't want to have to deal with the New York Times. I'm going to write for the Huffington Post. And then something happened that made people realize the world had changed. What she wrote for the Huffington Post was everywhere, on mm-hmm. CNN. I remember this piece. In the New York Times, you remember? So yeah. basically, she said it took her 20 minutes to write something. It was up immediately, and it was everywhere, because we began to realize it didn't matter anymore so much where a piece originated. If it was a good piece, and it added value to the conversation for whatever reason, it was going to be linked to in every other medium that mattered. And when you did that, this was before the age of social. Um, it, Huffington Post begins in 2005. Um, I can't remember exactly when Deep Throat happens, but it's... it's Very soon Oh, six or something, yeah. if, I, if I remember correctly. And that, that's a great piece. People should look it up. It's a great piece also on the process of Woodward and Bernstein in, in interesting ways. But how did you think about spreading things? The Huffington Post was very good and very early with search engines. And something that's been really fascinating to me is how well the site has made the transition to social, how well it's made the transition to Facebook video. But early on, what did you think about distribution for these kinds of pieces? Because you had to go to these folks like Nora Ephron and Ari Emanuel and say, this site that has no real existing readership is a place you should be. What was the argument you made for them that the return on their time would be sufficient? So what really happened is that in a very old-fashioned way, they would email their friends And very quickly, what they wrote entered the conversation. I mean, I remember on day one, Ellen DeGeneres wrote about let's stop killing horses, and it was picked up by Variety and The Hollywood Reporter. And and I don't remember what John Cusack wrote about, but immediately it was picked up everywhere, and their fan sites picked it up. And it it was a more organic response. And remember, there was a lot less competition at the time. Mm -hmm. You know, you didn't have all the other online sites and you didn't have the the mainstream media all online mm-hmm. um, so the world was different but I think what has sustained the Huffington Post and, and kept it being as well read and viewed as it is is the fact that we kept being ahead of the world changing like we did not stop innovating so when we kind of realized early on that the world was going social so while we had 70 sections with with our own front pages, you know, one morning I had to tell these editors, you know, hey, guys, stop updating your front pages. You know, <laughs> the numbers of people, other than our main right, front yeah. page, which is still worth investing a lot in and creating great splashes and everything, the rest was not worth it anymore. So instead, focus on your pieces going viral rather than creating the perfect headline with the perfect splash that people are going to come and see. But but how organizationally difficult is that? I mean, something that I think has been underappreciated about the Huffington Post, because because I'm in the industry, I watch these numbers pretty closely, and there have been, there are quite a f- BuzzFeed is usually considered the great winner of the social age, but there are a lot of months where the Huffington Post does better on Facebook than BuzzFeed does, or at least have been many of them, uh, according to Newswhip. 
how did that transition happen? Because you guys had a, a system that was optimized for one period. And in my experience, it's very hard. I mean, social content is very different than search content. It's very different than the content that works for linking. So how did you get the organization to develop its skills there? I think what happened there is that ever since we launched our impact section, which was about uh, what's working in the world, about solutions as opposed to what's screwed up in the world, we saw that this was the kind of content that people like to share, even in the early days of sharing, even if it meant just emailing it to their friends. And so when we prioritized social, we didn't just say, let's prioritize social. We said, let's prioritize these stories. That's when really we developed what we call our three editorial buckets, you know, obviously news and politics, but with our own attitude including what we're doing with Donald Trump, mm -hmm. for example. And the second big bucket is what we call what's working, which is let's look at what's working in the world. In every area where we normally tend to focus on the crisis, whether it's climate change, income inequalities, the drug war, all, all these big issues that have been half-post issues from the beginning, let's put the spotlight on solutions. These are the stories that people most want to share. I mean, I'm sure you've discovered that. People are not going to share a story on an ISIS beheading. They will read it. They're not going to say, you're right, not going yes. to send it to your mother, your, your wife. And, but you're going to share something that is about innovation or compassion or basically brings the best of humanity out. Yeah, I mean, there's a deep way in which, and I don't think people recognize this very often, but in which social media is a much more positive place in terms of what gets shared than, than certainly, I think, previous forms of media. I mean, for a long time, BuzzFeed had a no-haters rule, and that was part of internally having a emphasis on stories that were of positive affect, right? And, and it's interesting to hear you say that because that that is a very similar approach in a way. I mean, it's, it's hugely, yeah. hugely important. And also for us, it becomes kind of a bigger goal of kind of how do you reimagine journalism around solutions? Because traditionally, people who've been to journalism school are told if it bleeds, it leads. Mm -hmm. And uh, how can we actually reimagine things so that we can put the spotlight on solutions and uh, create even copycat solutions rather than copycat crimes. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of a very exciting, big idea, and we're just beginning to scratch the surface. But I hired a great guy, Joe Confino from The Guardian, and he came here to run this, and that's a huge priority for us. And the third bucket is wellness, which again has turned out to be exactly what people want to share. Because, again, if you read a story about sleep or healthy mm -hmm. eating, you want to share it with the people you care about, your friends, your family, if it resonates with you. Oh, yeah. How to live better. Those stories How to live better. go gangbusters. Yeah. Well, let me say one other thing that I just want to ask you about the, about the start of Huffington Post. So you talked a bit about the Ellen DeGeneres story that launched with the Huffington Post about no longer killing horses. And something I've always thought was very smart about the publication is that it expanded the room of what an op-ed could be, that op-ed pages traditionally focus on a fairly narrow set of issues. I mean, in addition to not having much space themselves, they're, they're really about politics and foreign policy and war and things of that nature, that there wasn't an op-ed page in the health section of the newspaper. There wasn't an op-ed page in the entertainment section of the newspaper. And you all 
sort of created that. That seems to have unlocked a lot of kinds of pieces that really had nowhere to exist before that, or not nowhere, but not many places. Yes, and also basically we realize that people who are famous for one thing have other interests. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ellen DeGeneres cared about horses. I mean, you didn't know that. I didn't know that uh, before she sent that blog post in. Almost every celebrity has some kind of charity they're mm-hmm. interested and passionate about and often really, really passionate about. So encouraging them to write about those things and as we moved into video, to do video about those things. So by the time we launched our morning show, uh, Half Post Rise, we decided that we we're going to do 90 seconds of what's happened in the world, you know, all the big news, mm-hmm. most of which is negative. <laughs> but then the rest... We're going to focus on solutions and on the latest on how to live better. And um, we found that this had a great impact in terms of who wanted to be on it, who wanted to talk about these things. And also, since we also have to monetize what we are doing, that these were issues that brands wanted to be around. So you are focusing on wellness uh, as one of the big buckets. And from in Thrive, your, your previous book, In the Sleep Revolution, around this time, if I'm not wrong about, about the, the, the period, you faint from exhaustion and break your cheekbone. And so I'd be curious before sort of getting into that day, what was happening right then? Like what was the context in which that occurred? What had, what had that week been like? So um, that week I was taking my oldest daughter, Christina, around colleges for her to choose what college, what colleges she was mm-hmm. going to apply to. And our agreement was that uh, I wasn't going to be on my BlackBerry. That was BlackBerry time. It, the Huffington Post was not yet two years old. You remember the early days. Mm-hmm. I wrongly felt that everything was on my shoulders. <laughs> and if I took my eye off what was happening the baby would not survive. So I would be the good mom during the day and not look at my BlackBerry and not work. Then we would check into a hotel. She would go to sleep and I would start working. So, and at the time I was also writing every day, if you can believe it. I was writing a blog post. (laughs) You remember those days? Every day. Because... I had like the penthouse, the top position, and I felt, again, totally stupidly, that that was really important, that I had, my voice had to be heard every day. So on top of it, I think you reach a level of exhaustion where you don't even, you should not even be making decisions because your decisions are so bad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I agreed to go on reliable sources when I returned to L.A., which was much earlier in terms of L.A. time, right. after I stopped in Portland to give a speech. So do you understand the level of uh, insanity that anybody who's been fully exhausted and burned out can identify with? Because basically, you should be locked away and not be making decisions. And so I, got, I come back from... Um, the CNN studio in Mm -hmm. L.A., um, where I was living at the time. And I was still working from my home office in L.A., and I go to get a sweater because I was cold, and I collapse. And I come to in a pool of blood, and that's the beginning of my reevaluating my life, but also reevaluating the culture. Mm -hmm. 
the the culture broadly or the culture of the Huffington no, Post? No, the culture broadly, the culture mm-hmm. of burnout, the culture of the collective delusion that burnout is the way to succeed, that if you really care about what you're doing, if you're really committed and dedicated to your job, your project, your startup, then you're just going to sacrifice your sleep, your health. And all the new science that I'm obsessed with now shows that, in fact, you're sacrificing your performance. So that even if, let's say, even if all you cared about was your work, then your work will suffer. Mm-hmm if you don't recharge yourself. And it's so interesting because every, really every religion, every spiritual philosophy in every culture says the same thing. You know, that there are these two threads in our lives. You know, one takes us out to achieve, conquer, <laughs> succeed, and the other brings us back to refuel. You know, whether it's yin yang or whether it's, you know, the kingdom of God is within, but you go out to get uh, your work done. It's all the same principle, but we have kind of forgotten the refueling part. So you have this fainting episode and you wake up and you're, you're genuinely injured. What are the first changes you make in your life? So, well, you know, I, also when something like that happens, you end up going from doctor to doctor, right. you know, from echocardiogram to MRI to find out what's wrong with you. Do you have a brain tumor? Do you have a heart disease? And basically, my diagnosis was you have civilization's disease, which is burnout, and there's nothing we can do for you. There's no surgery or pill. You have to change the way you live your life. I started with sleep, actually. I started getting 30 minutes more sleep a night until I got to what I realized was my optimal level, which is eight hours. You know, the consensus is that the majority of us need seven to nine hours Mm -hmm. unless we have a genetic mutation that makes us a short sleeper, and then we can do great on four hours. But it's not something we can train ourselves. I know. I really envy those people. Well, do you know that now I met a professor at Berkeley who does gene editing, and you can edit the genes of your unborn children. Although I don't know which parent right. would want a child that only sleeps four hours, but if you want it, you can do it. But once we're born, right? Once we're born, it's... the dice cast. Yeah. So let, let me ask you something about that because I think there's an interesting philosophical question here that, that it gets to. There are folks who believe and and whose critique of the broader culture of burnout is that sleep is a good in and of itself. Slowing down is a good in and of itself. The the joke I just made, which is not at all a joke, that I envy the people, the genetic mutation allows them to sleep only four hours a night, is the problem itself. And then there's an argument which feels to me more like the argument of your books, which is that being underslept, not taking enough time to care for yourself is going to harm your productivity, your happiness, your life. And it's it's a much more utilitarian or instrumental argument for taking time for self-care. So so is that right or which side of that divide are you on? Oh, I am I am constitutionally on the side of um that we are not defined by our work and therefore sleep is of value in itself because it opens up a gateway to the mystery of life, wherever we are, in terms of belief or atheism, or there is a mystery to life that we don't understand, and, and sleep and dreams are part of that mystery. But I want to change the culture. 
And as somebody who wants to change the culture, I will meet people where they are. Mm -hmm. Because I say, I have this line in the book. I say, come to sleep for the job-enhancing benefits, stay for the life-enhancing benefits. I don't really care what people's entry point is. And I'm more likely to meet millions of people at the performance level than I am to meet them at the dreams and mystery level. But but let me... me ask on that because I feel, as you say that, a, a bit of skepticism. You have a tremendous website called the, and, and not just website at this, at this point, operation called the Huffington Post. You are on the side of that writing books, doing lectures, doing book tours. Um, I know you, I believe you do some corporate consulting to help them change their internal cultures. It seems to me from the outside, right? And, and obviously I don't, I don't know your internal life at all, but from the outside, you are someone who gives more to their work and more of their time to their work than 99% of human beings could possibly even consider doing. So I don't really have a big dividing line between my work and my life because I I do things that I absolutely love and and around issues that I care about. But I have prioritized making sure that I'm fully recharged in my life. So that requires certain decisions. Like I flew in last night from New York, and I have a lot of good friends in Washington. I would have loved to go to dinner with them, but I had an early TV show. So I got into bed, ordered room service, and had an early night. Mm -hmm. I prioritize my meditation. I prioritize recharging time with my daughters and my close friends. So I think that's what refuels me. So when I show up for work, I think when I show up fully present and uh, bringing in gratitude and joy for what I'm doing, it changes the nature of work. Because trust me, I've been at the other end when you basically go through your day checking the boxes. And I remember looking at tables and hoping I could maybe crawl under one of them and go to sleep. And we've all been there in this kind of exhausted state where we still do things, but the joy has gone. So I think the big shift in my life is I no longer care just to get things done. When the joy goes, I know it's time for me to regroup and retrench. And recovery is so key. That's what we've we've forgotten. I mean, there will be days when we have deadlines or we're jet lagged or we have a sick child or whatever it is. But then how do how how quickly do we course correct and recharge? So is that is that how you measure it? Because one thing that you just mentioned, and I think it's an interesting piece of it to draw out, is that for you and I think for a lot of people privileged to work in jobs that are also their obsessions, which is Obviously not everybody, but I think probably a lot of people listening to this podcast have that experience where they work in something that it is hard for them to put it down because they're there because they really care about it. So in that world, how do you know when it's taking too much out of you? Because it can, as you say, that that line can be very blurry. So it's when the it's when the joy goes. It's when, when you find yourself goes. not enjoying things yes. that you should be enjoying. Exactly. Like talking to you now is is really enjoyable for me. We could be having dinner. And probably and should be. You know, you this know, would be better if I gave exactly. people food. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you know what I'm saying. We could, it could be a social encounter where we decide, hey, let's have dinner and talk. Mm-hmm. Or we could be doing a podcast. What changes the, the nature of that for me is how fully present I am. And that for me is purely a function of how exhausted I am. And if I've taken care of 
my sleep and my meditation and the things that refuel me, then the joy is there. And when the joy goes, I know it's time to cancel. And I do that. Mm. So I have a very sleep is the cousin of death sort of attitude toward, towards being asleep where I deeply resent it. I know I need it. And I think in general, I actually get a reasonable amount of sleep, but I resent it and do try all kinds of weird things to sleep a little bit less like or wake a little bit more. Um, what, are the, what are the weird things I try to sleep a bit less? Well, I'm always trying new ways to actually get myself up with my alarm. I've actually recently found something that has really worked for me in ways that it's possible you will find appalling. But you've let that go. I'd actually would like to hear you talk a little bit more about the sort of positive case for sleep, sleep on sleep's merits, the, the argument of right. mystery and, mm-hmm. and having a bit of insight. But let me understand. So yeah. you, you try to wake up ahead of your alarm? Is that what no, you're saying? No, I try to wake up when my alarm goes off. What I would like to be able to do is to set an early alarm and when it goes off to get up with it. Immediately. As opposed to hitting the snooze button 12 times, which one could argue, right? I'm doing because I am tired. Um, oh, the snooze button up. is barbaric. <laughs> I think the snooze button should be eliminated. You know, obviously the ideal is to wake up without an alarm right. because that means you have completed all the cycles of mm-hmm. sleep. And you cannot oversleep, incidentally, unless you're a narcoleptic or severely depressed. You can overeat, but you cannot oversleep. But if you are not there yet, then I would always set my alarm at the last possible moment. Right. And and never go through the torture of the snooze button. In fact, I'm I get really irritated with hotel operators when you call them and ask for an alarm call, and they then tell you, "Would you like a follow up?" And I say, "No, would <laughs> I want a follow up? I'm asking you to wake my to wake me up when I have to get up." But anyway, that's just a pet peeve of mine. In terms of the mystery of sleep, well, first of all. Sleep and dreams have been part of every religion. You know, every religion includes dreams as a way of God communicating with the faithful and even with those who are not faithful but will become faithful. And uh, sleep was revered in ancient times. I mean, if you go to the temple of, in Luxor or temples in ancient Greece or ancient Rome, You know, people would go and incubate their dreams. There would be priestesses to prepare them for sleep. And they would do that either because they wanted to have clarity about a certain important decision they were going to make or because they wanted to have some what they should do in terms of healing if they were sick. So there was this incredible sense that that sleep connects us to a deeper part of ourselves another reality and another dimension. And that remains. And in fact, dreams, which we, t- we tend not to remember when we're sleep deprived, become just an, an incredible part of life. I mean, now that I remember my dreams and have a dream journal on my nightstand and a light with a, that has a flashlight, mm-hmm. a, a pen with a flashlight so that I don't have to turn on a light. It's just amazing to see how many worlds we inhabit beyond the world that we feel is is everything. Do you experiment with lucid dreaming? No, I don't actually like lucid dreaming because part of what I like about sleep is giving up control. Hmm. I mean, I, I have this little saying that life is a dance between making it happen and letting it happen. And I think to the extent that in our lives we make things happen, <laughs> I want my my sleep time to be about letting things happen. 
So what is the reason for keeping a dream journal and trying to remember more of your dreams? Because it connects me with the different parts of myself and my life that I'm not really fully connected with in my daily life. Like some of them are dreams that clear up things that I've been processing during the day. Some of them are more profound. I've had a recurring dream, for example. Would you like to hear it? I would like to hear it. <laughs> I've had a recurring dream that I'm on a train going home. You can say going home to God, going whatever going home means to you. Mm-hmm. And uh, in my compartment uh, is my family and my closest friends. And the quality of the journey, the dream, you know, changes, but the quality of the journey depends on how I relate to the scenery. Because some scenery is beautiful, some scenery is ugly. And after having that dream many times, I realized this was a metaphor for my life, that, you know, there, in every life, you know, there are great things happening and painful things happening. And ultimately, the quality of our life depends on on how attached we are, either to the good things happening or to the terrible things happening, and how do we internalize them, and how centered and imperturbable we can remain in the face of bad things happening. And the other interesting thing, which was a recent iteration of this dream, was that what do you do when people come into your compartment who are toxic? Hmm. And I kind of let them off the train. I just like, decided, and that is another metaphor. It's like you don't have to allow toxic people into your life. You, it's your life and it's your train, and you can choose to let them off the train. So you have, you have control over, over the train. In, you have control over your compartment. You have no Got control okay. over the scenery. Interesting. Because, you know, you, you only, which is true of our lives, there's a lot we don't have control over. When we acknowledge that, it's really a little bit, my, my daughter went through drugs in her last year at college. Mm-hmm. She's now in her fourth year being sober. So it's really the serenity prayer, you know, mm-hmm. accepting the things I cannot change, changing the things I can and the wisdom to know the difference. Right. Your dream life feels much more profound and and metaphysically heavy than mine. I I dreamt last night, it's a rare dream that I could remember, that I could not get my teeth clean. You can't. I could not get my teeth clean in the dream. It was not a good dream. Was was it nightmarish? No, not nightmarish, just really... Just irritating. Yeah, had a lot of streaks on my teeth, couldn't get them clean. I mean, I remember reading something very vaguely at some point that this is a common kind of dream people have, but but it is a rare one that has stuck with me into, into the afternoon of the day. Well, I, I have a lot of mundane dreams, too. But you asked me to give you a dream that had to do uh, with something deeper and more mysterious. But I, my, my mundane dreams have mostly to do with being late. Support for the gray area comes from Greenlight. If you're a parent of teenagers, you might be starting conversations about money management and financial literacy. So often, the best way to learn is to do. But when it comes to money, there can be real consequences to learning the hard way. That's where Greenlight comes in. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on their spending and saving. And kids and teens can build money confidence and lifelong financial skills. My kid is way too young to talk money with, thank God. But I have a colleague here at Vox that uses Greenlight with his boys, and he loves it. If you want to help your kids learn about money, consider Greenlight. It's a convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and for families to navigate this stuff 
together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash gray area. That's greenlight.com slash gray area to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash gray area. So I want to go to something you said uh, a couple of minutes ago, which is that embedded in what you were doing pre this experience at Huffington Post was a style of leadership where you felt that the success of the organization rested on your back, that how much you personally work was a tremendous determinant of what would happen to the organization. And you referred to this a couple of times as stupid, as wrong, as something you've gotten past. I'm curious, alongside this question of taking time to recharge yourself, how your approach to management has actually changed. Well, the way it's changed is by recognizing that when my approach was that I have to be on 24-7 in order for this baby to thrive, I ended up making a lot of mistakes. And I can look back and see that. I ended up hiring the wrong people. Essential mistake in an organization. because Why, why did doing that lead you to hire the wrong people? Because I, I, I know from myself that when I'm exhausted, I miss the red flags. I'm not operating from the best me that sees the red flags, that can hear things that are not being said, that has insights that can guide me to making the right decisions. Also, I can say without doubt that when I started prioritizing how recharged I am in running the Huffington Post, I could see much more clearly where we should be going. All the big decisions I made, deciding to prioritize global and to prioritize going global with partners. When everybody around me was saying, why are you leaving stuff on the table? Why do you need to go 50-50 with Le Monde or the Espresso Group or all these major media mm -hmm. players? Because all our expansion around the world is 50-50 joint ventures or commercial partnerships. I said it's more important to be the first mover to move around the world Quickly, And now we're in 15, about to be 16 countries when we're going to Mexico soon. And it's been amazing. It's really made us a global newsroom. And we would not have been able to do that if we had not partnered with a major media player, which made everything so much more cost effective. We, had, uh, we could share their office space. They could do the HR. Mm -hmm. They could sell advertising. So... That's just one example. What we discussed earlier about seeing clearly where the world was going and moving to social, I think after all, leadership is about these big decisions. Mm -hmm. And the big decisions have to do where are the big opportunities, where is the world going, and how do we need to innovate to be there, and what do we need to change to get there, and also where are the icebergs before they hit the Titanic when anybody can see them. But so what are the things, I mean, aside from getting, from getting more sleep and getting more time, it, it seems very easy to do that and then walk in and say, well, I still need to be working incredibly hard. I still need to be keeping my arms and everything. And it sounds like this came alongside a process of letting go of certain ideas of your own role at the organization. And no, that doesn't because, seem as inevitable to me. No, because it hasn't. Uh, no, it just simply has meant that I don't have to be on literally all the time. I'm still 100% involved in the organization. But like you stopped writing every day. Yes, exactly. That's a very good point. I, I, but I don't have to write every day. Mm -hmm. I can 
write about the things that I feel I can add value. Mm-hmm. I don't have to write immediately and comment on the deal that Ted Cruz and John Kasich made to try and stop Trump. You know, obviously, if you're a political reporter, you immediately feel, oh, you have to have a comment on this. And I gave up doing the morning shows. Oh, interesting. And I gave up doing the Sunday political shows. So I made certain choices because it's more important for me to put my energy into running the Huffington Post, making all our decisions that, that matter at a high level. And also, I feel very passionate about the need for a culture shift around wellness and sleep. And so writing the books and writing about these themes and doing the college tour we're doing to 100 colleges to bring the message to millennials. I'm not going to 100 colleges, but also just a great audience for the Huffington Post. Right. Uh, One thing I'm fascinated by around that is you talked a couple of minutes ago about your global expansion and you, you said you're going to be in 16 countries. Yeah. Yes. How do you manage international affiliates? Vox.com is only in America. And I find managing Vox.com to be an extremely challenging thing on its own, trying to keep quality where I want it, trying to keep new things happening, trying to you know just keep the organization moving in a productive way. To try to do that with a French version of Vox.com or a Indian version of Vox.com sounds very difficult. Like, there have been ideas about partnering with other, uh, other organizations, but what is always been scary about that to me is uh, is the quality control question. So how do you do that? So the way we've done it is, first of all, putting a lot of energy into hiring the right editor-in-chief and editorial director. The, it's a team of two in every country. What is the difference between those positions? So the editor-in-chief is the day-to-day person that runs uh, Half Post France or Half Post Japan. And the editorial director is the person who has a lot of contacts everywhere and can bring in a lot of the bloggers. Mm-hmm. Like in France, for example, Anne Sinclair, who, who was the wife of Dominique Strauss-Kahn and a great journalist in France, is the editorial director. And this has been amazing because from day one in France, we were able to get politicians and great business leaders and entertainers writing for the Huffington Post. And Paul Ackerman used to be the editor-in-chief of Le Figaro Digital, and he's our editor-in-chief and has been phenomenal. And being very clear with them what these three buckets are, mm-hmm. you know, what we want to be the best at. So that the model is the same. The model is the same. It's mm-hmm. the same thing. You know, it's like wellness is a huge part of our editorial coverage around the world. And then what happens is that a lot of this content is evergreen and also global. So the German edition can take a story on sleep and then add their own data from Germany, kind of top and tail it, and they have another story mm-hmm. that they don't have to write everything themselves. That's it, interesting. And the same with solutions. A lot of solutions are global. It's like it's about cities, a lot of them. And so knowing what's happening in Seoul, Korea, is interesting to a lot of our readers who are reading about equivalent solutions in uh, Berlin. And, and I assume these these uh, publications are in the language of the... Oh, country. totally. So totally. How, do you, how does the... American team, or for that matter, the German team, well, I guess the American team, because they probably don't speak German, figure out that there is a 
article in Huffington Post oh, Germany well, that they should use? Well, all, first of all, all the editors we hire have to speak English mm-hmm. because already, you know, have so much content that appears in English, in English and, that, and that is available as is to India, Australia, Canada, and the UK. But then we have dedicated editors in New York who surface articles and who get information from, let's say, the German editor, hey, I think this is going to be of interest to our other editions. Mm-hmm. And we get them translated. We have a big translation machine That's interesting. that is constantly translating. So it's a big operation. Um, we have regular, at least twice a year, meetings with all the editors that different countries host where we talk about everything, how can we improve process. We just hired a fantastic head of product from the Washington Post, so that we can... Who did you hire? Julia Beiser. Oh, yeah, she's great. Yeah, she's really great. So that the idea is to improve the ways that the editors are communicating with each other, productize a lot of these communications. So it's really working, and the content has been very much Huffington Post content. When you began glowing, going into the global editions, how often did you travel to these countries, probably at the beginning. I mean, would it be something like you would send a mem- you or a member of your staff for the first two months or? Well, um, that's such a great question because at the beginning I would go there to pick the partner mm-hmm. because a lot of media companies wanted to partner with us. And so picking the right partner has always been key and we've been very blessed. You know, they've all been amazing. So I would go there to pick the partner and then I would go there for the launch. I mean, that was at the minimum. Mm -hmm. And then we would bring the editors to New York to train for a month or more before the launch. That's really interesting. Yeah. But now I feel that a lot of the potential partners are coming to New York to talk to us. Oh, interesting. So I don't have to go there (laughs) to meet with them. (laughs) It it becomes its own machine. It becomes its own machine. and, And now... We are actually, like when we launched in Australia, we had made an advertising deal that paid for the entire first year. So we're starting in the in the black. Oh, there you go. What is your, speaking of advertising deals, what is your view of the broader advertising economics right now? So Huffington Post was sold a number of years ago to AOL. AOL was recently sold or sold itself to Verizon, which is, I believe, considered to be a big advertising technology deal. How do you see that market evolving? So I see that for the Huffington Post, because of this prioritizing of these three buckets that we talked about, a huge monetization opportunity for us has been through native advertising and content deals. Mm -hmm. Just to give you an example, we made a big advertising deal with Sleep Number, which is a mattress company. So they're now sponsoring our sleep and wellness section. And it, it, everything is transparent. You know, it says Sleep and Wellness, sponsored by Sleep Number. There is a dedicated partner studios that produces content. So it's not the same editors or the same reporters. There are people hired by the partner studios to produce content for these advertising deals. And native advertising, which, of course, you know, we first invented really early on. And I remember when our first native advertising deal with a big hotel chain came about and the first comment was a negative comment about the hotel chain and the CMO wanted to cancel the deal. So we had to explain to them that whether they 
had the deal with us or not, these comments would be out there on Facebook Mm -hmm. or Twitter. So they might as well be in the arena answering them. And that was like the beginning of brands being educated about native advertising. Two things got a little... uh sort of put together there. So you, you mentioned the deal with the sleep, who was it? Sleep number. Sleep number. It's a mattress So company. on the one hand, and I read a bit about this deal. So on the one hand, they have, you've signed a three-year deal with them that launched your sleep section that, that added a Oh, a, no, a our sleep section was launched in 2007. Sorry, it added a reporter to it, yes? Yes, it added a reporter. And then they also have a native deal with you guys. Right. Which is separate to create branded content. Mm-hmm. So how, one thing about a deal like that, how do you make sure if a section is to a large degree dependent on a single sponsor, if the sleep reporter found out tomorrow that actually the evidence is incontrovertible and one should not sleep on mattresses, that sleeping on the floor is a much, much better thing, and that the new crusade of anybody who reports on sleep should be floor sleeping, how do you balance that? Well, we, there is a absolute Chinese wall mm-hmm. between how we cover the industry and what is sponsored content. And a, a better example, since I don't think we're likely to discover tomorrow <laughs> that we should eliminate mattresses, is how do we cover Goldman Sachs? Mm-hmm. Because we have a, a partnership with them. They sponsor a section called What's Working, which is around what they are doing for female entrepreneurs and small business people. Mm-hmm. So telling the stories. And we cover Goldman Sachs the way we always have covered Goldman Sachs. You know, there's absolutely no diminution in the way we cover them. Take Johnson & Johnson. We've had a deal with them for four years around global maternal health. And then uh, our Highline section, which is our long-form section, hired Steve Brill to write the story about what Johnson & Johnson had done around a particular drug. Mm -hmm. So we have a lot of evidence of how our coverage of stories is not at all affected by the sponsorships. And when, how much of your time do you spend on these kinds of partnerships? I mean, you are, I think, as the face of the brand, right? Do you spend a lot of time working with these partners, sort of trying to create deals that that make sense? Or is this sort of someone else's work? No, I think that shaping our big big deals, I'm very much involved Mm -hmm. in the Goldman Sachs deal. Lloyd Blankenfein and I announced in Davos three years ago the sleep number deal. I worked with their CEO. Uh, But then once the the deal is structured, it moves to the partner studios to execute. Got it. I'm going to ask you a couple more sort of disconnected questions that 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 can be quicker answers or longer if you if you prefer, but that, that we try to do at the end of the podcast here. What are the three books you would recommend that people in the audience read, with the exception of The Sleep Revolution, <laughs> Transforming Your Life One Night at a Time by Ariana Huffington? Which you are recommending, not me. I am recommending. <laughs> so I love a book um, by Sherry Turkle about conversations. And she's just, she's an MIT professor. Mm -hmm. And she has written about how technology has gotten in a way of conversations. And she has this great story about how if we're having dinner and our phones are on the table, even if they're off, they affect the conversation. Because instinctively, we feel at any moment, we may be interrupted. And therefore, we're not willing to be as open or as vulnerable. So, hold on. I want to ask, make sure I understand that. 
even if your phone is off, the idea yes. of it being in your sight line on the table yes. is a... Affects the conversation. I absolutely feel that about myself. You feel that? I feel that incredibly strongly. Well, La- you two have- nights ago, I saw that I was talking to my wife at dinner and my phone was like on its back, like on the table. And I realized that to concentrate on the conversation, I went and moved it to the other side of the living room because just having it there was incredibly distracting to me. That, that is fantastic that you realize that. She has the data to prove it. Her book is called Reclaiming Conversations, and it's really wonderful. I love it. it, it I read it recently, and it's one of my favorites. Another book is by Bill George, who is a professor at Harvard, Harvard Business School. He's on the board of Goldman Sachs. He's like a, a real business leader who has recognized the importance of mindfulness recharging for leadership. And he calls his book is called Discover Your True North. It's about this new shift in understanding what makes effective leadership. And the culmination of it, it's not a book yet, but I'd like to mention it because it's connected, is a study by McKinsey that was extracted in the Harvard Business Review 10 days ago, too late to include in my book, but absolutely part of the tipping point. The title of the study is the proven link between effective leadership and sleep. Now, at first, you would have thought this is a an onion headline, really, coming from McKinsey. Mm-hmm. But they walk through what happens yeah, I know to people a, worked at McKinsey. You don't get to sleep you don't, Exactly. You don't get to sleep. But there is this whole explanation, scientific explanation, of what happens to our prefrontal cortex when um, the executive functions that are housed there are degraded because of sleep deprivation. So... In a way, Bill George's book is a precursor of that recognition that self-care is not something detrimental to our productivity, but a performance enhancer. To go back to your point of meeting people where they are in terms Mm -hmm. of preoccupation with performance. All right. And what is your third? And the third is a book that was very important for me by Alan Derrickson called Dangerously Sleepy to explain how, how we came to devalue sleep. It's a historical book, and it takes us back to the first Industrial Revolution with incredible stories about how that was the time when we began to treat human beings like machines, and the goal with a machine is to minimize downtime. So we began to feel that that was also the goal with a human being, and also the macho part of that, how how little sleep you got became like a a virility symbol. Right. You've talked about this a little bit before, that there is a one-upsmanship. Yes. Oh, I only got four hours. I only got three hours. Especially in Washington. I remember when I lived here, and it was like trying to kind of organize a breakfast in Washington at the time. It was like, oh, six o'clock, really? Uh, That's a little late for me. But hey, you know, I'll I'll, I'll hit the gym and make some calls to Europe and meet you, lazy person at six. (laughs) And... and, uh, and But he kind of walks you through the whole history and then Thomas Edison and um, the invention of the light bulb and everything he has said about sleep is so monumentally false. But there was this cultural icon saying that sleep is an absurdity and there will come a day soon when it will be eliminated, which kind of explains how we came to this point. It's not like by accident. There are too many people we admired who believed false things about sleep. And that happens in our culture. I mean, look at what was happening up to the 50s and beyond about cigarettes. You know, you can go and look at 
doctors in in ads in the 50s recommending one brand of cigarette over another and saying things like, I smoke mental cigarettes because they refresh my throat. Right. Something you just said reminded me. I think there are a lot of people, and I'm often one of them, who the problem is not that they don't want to get more sleep. It's that they find it hard to develop a sleep cycle that fits their life, right? I mean, teenagers, I think, are the, the great example of this, who just need to wake up a little bit later. Right, because, because, of, of, their, because of their circadian rhythms. Their rhythms yeah. and, and are not allowed to. But what do you recommend in the book? What do you do to actually get to sleep? Because when you start telling yourself that, oh, I really need to be getting seven, eight hours, and then you feel those minutes ticking by and you know now you're going down to seven and now you're going down to only six hours. Now, right. It creates a cycle of just being angry at yourself. Oh, absolutely. Being asleep. So, so think... what do you do to get to sleep and what do you recommend people do to get to sleep? So two things. The first is as we change the culture, especially when it comes to teenagers and college students, and they begin to realize that, in fact, sleep is non-negotiable, they will stop this delusion in college, they call it, you know, great social life sleep, peak two, right? And mm-hmm. only the losers pick sleep. They will realize that, in fact, sleep... I college to be the part of my life when you could do everything. <laughs> I don't understand so you, that at all. You, Maybe I went to an easy college. You didn't give up sleep then. You see, look at you. Look how far it got you. But it's all, so it's that, all like college sleeping. <laughs> that will affect, you know school grades and social life and hopefully deal with the mental health problems that we're having now. But when it comes to what we do once we agree and decide that we do need seven to nine hours, the most important thing is creating a transition to sleep. You know, everybody who is listening with children knows that when you have babies or young children, you don't just drop them in bed. You have a whole ritual you create around giving them a bath, putting them in their PJs, singing them a lullaby, reading them a story. We need to create a ritual for ourselves. And I have a whole menu of tips and techniques in the second section of the book. After you convince yourself through the science and the history that it matters, I also mention my ritual, which includes 30 minutes before I'm going to go to sleep, taking off all my devices outside the bedroom, having a hot bath, or a shower, if I'm in a hotel without a bathtub, wearing sleep clothes, PJs and nightdress, anything except the clothes I used to wear, which were the same that I would go to the gym in. Mm. Uh, I, I sleep in a full suit, actually. You do? Yeah, With a tie? All a tie, bow tie. Oh, God, I want to see a picture. Can you, can <laughs> I like, you post I, I, it? I, I, try to, I try to bring a little bit of class to, into to my your, Into hours, your bedroom. Yeah. And I hope your wife sleeps in full ball gown. No, she doesn't. She doesn't join me in this. <laughs> so whatever it is, as long as you're not going to wear it anywhere else, it's fine. And then for me, it's reading physical books, which I love because I love the feeling also of, you know, dozing off as you are reading and then letting the book drop to the floor, which you're not likely to want to do with your Kindle, let alone your iPad. So creating that ritual is absolutely key in, so that your brain doesn't wake you up in the middle of the night. And if it does, it's not a problem. I'm often woken up in the middle of the night and then I start meditating or I listen to one of the meditations I recommend. The important thing is not to go back to your day life, mm-hmm. not to go to your smartphone and start checking emails and texts. 
And what is something that you believe not about sleep that most people think is not true? <laughs> so I believe that there is no death. Hmm. And what do you mean by that? I, I believe that we are souls having a human experience. And I love what many of my favorite philosophers have written about death, whether it's Socrates practice death daily, or the Romans who would carve MM, memento mori, remember death mm -hmm. on trees and statues. Because I believe that when we integrate death into our lives, not in a morbid sense, but in the sense that it's inevitable for everybody, as the Onion headline put it, you know, death rate holds steady at 100%. It puts everything in perspective, and it makes it much easier for us to not be thrown by all the daily challenges and obstacles of life. So what has persuaded you that this is true? Well, first of all, instinctively, I have felt that this is not it. You know, this, this life does not end with our death. I mean, this life, this mm -hmm. particular life of our personality does, but not our life. And then I've spent a lot of time studying this question. You know, ever since I was 17 years old, I went to India and studied comparative religion. I've read endlessly around that topic. I... I love uh, bringing that reality into my daily life. And the people I most admire, like the book I have on my nightstand that I dip into regularly, is a book by Marcus Aurelius mm -hmm. called Meditations. And the reason I picked that is because Marcus Aurelius was the emperor of Rome. So he had a pretty big job. <laughs> he dealt with invasions and plagues and every problem you can imagine. But... He had a sense that there was another reality and that he was very connected with. And in this book, he writes about that. And for me, the spiritual reality is not an alternative to this worldly life. I mean, I'm definitely in the arena, but bringing that dimension into everything I'm doing enriches it dramatically and changes the way I approach challenges. So as someone who, who would very much like to share this, what are, what are some of the books that, that, that you found persuasive? I mean, Marcus Aurelius's meditations are amazing, but, but they're, I, when I've read them, I found them more, a little bit more grounded, a little bit more... Um, you read a bad translation. I'm I, going to, I might yeah. have, yeah. No, no, honestly, it makes a huge difference. But, there are about 13 translations and there's only one good one, oh, which I will send you tomorrow morning. But, but, I, but I, either way on it, it, it isn't a book that is making an argument about really what happens to us after death. It's a book about how to live. Right. And the, the hard thing for me in, in wanting to have more of a connection with these kinds of beliefs is that it crashes on the ground, on the shoals of, you know, what I would probably think of as my rationality, but may not be. But I find it very hard taking that leap of faith without something that feels like evidence may be too strong of a word, but an argument that doesn't feel like it is simply what I want to believe. So what I would recommend for you, because you're such an intellectual, Ezra, is to read physics. Because I think the fastest way to connect with that reality is all these new discoveries around 
quantum physics and now most recently gravitational fields and recognizing that what looks like matter is really energy. And reading modern physics is like an incredibly mystical experience. It is very, I agree that it's a very <laughs> mind-bending mystical It's totally experience. mind-bending and there is no time and looking at timescapes and all that for me, for intellectuals like you, physics is the way in. And there is actually a very interesting book by Arthur Kessler called Creation which is about the spiritual lives of scientists and how many scientists came to their inventions, discoveries through dreams, through spiritual beliefs. I mean, the, the interconnection between spirituality and science is utterly fascinating. And I feel uh, for you, approaching it from the science part rather than the spirituality part would be... A great way to do it. I remember when I was in college, I read a book, and I do not remember the name anymore, uh, but it was a dialogue between a, con a quantum physicist and a Buddhist monk. You may, you may know it, but, but it was interesting on these questions. Uh, although one thing that I've always... Actually, he was at, um, at Yellowstone to, read the, to go full circle, Mathieu Ricard. Oh, yeah, that was... Yes, the, yeah, it was yeah, the was book the, uh... by Mathieu Ricard interviewing his father who was the scientist, and Mathieu Ricard was also right. a scientist who then became a Buddhist monk and then returned full circle to interview his dad, who was a scientist. That's interesting. So, yeah, that, that sounds right. It's been a while since I've read it, but, but that makes total sense. But I, one thing I've, I've wondered in the, in the years after that is how much of the language around quantum physics simply bends our minds in ways that are similar to the way we speak about spirituality, but exist in a slightly different box may not be the right term, but things like light being both a wave and a particle. I feel there's a deep desire I have to read a lot into that kind of thing. And I always wonder, and, and I guess this is the question here for, for you, how to keep myself from just trying to make science imply what I wanted to say. I don't think you are trying to make science imply that. I mean, look at what Einstein has said. You know, after all, he talked about imagination being more important than knowledge. He, he, he talked in a way which we can regard spiritual while being this great uh, scientific genius. And so I, I, I feel that scientists themselves talk like that. I think it's a good place to close. Ariana Huffington, thank you. Oh, no, please. You know what? You I have really, more you want to talk about. No, I really want to close with your 2007 quote. Okay. Okay. Am I allowed to? You, you, yes, it is. It is the, the floor is yours to, <laughs> to quote me. So um, this is Ezra Klein, guys, in Praise of Slumber, uh, writing in The Prospect, October 16, 2007, a quote full of wisdom. New York Magazine, Ezra writes, has a terrifically interesting article on sleep research and the overwhelming scientific consensus that even moderate reductions in shut-eye can do serious damage to our mental speed. The risk of reading this article is that you will do what I did this morning, which is wake up tired, tell yourself that your place of employment wouldn't want you functioning at 60% capacity, nor becoming really fat, and go back to sleep. A little sleep research is a dangerous thing, particularly at 7 in the morning. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> you are ahead of the game. <laughs>
Thank you so much to Ariana Huffington for, for being on the show this week. Thank you to you, the listeners, for, for spending this time with us. Thank you to my producer, AC Valdez. The Ezra Klein Show is a partnership between Vox.com and Panoply Networks, and we will be back next week. 